So I've been gone for this past week or so on a work trip, and I won't be back until next weekend. I wanted to do something fun for this episode in the interim. So last week, Haley and I recorded this fun little game show version of an episode. I've set it up in a way that if you guys are listening at home, you can feel free to play along and see how well you do. Either way, I hope you enjoy it. Hey Hales, how do you recognize a lead guitarist outside a building? How? Because he's got the wrong key and he doesn't know when to come in. Warning, the following podcast is not suitable for listeners of any age. The podcast may include poor guitar playing, dad jokes, and inducement of fear acquisition syndrome. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you whenever you're listening. I'm your host, Carson. And I'm Haley. And welcome to the Pedals and Pickups podcast. In this podcast, we'll talk about your news in the music industry. We're faster than Internet Explorer, but who isn't? Famous pieces of gear that I'm too broke to buy. Famous artists you'll never be able to play like. And topics or tips about guitars and music recording. So this week, we are doing something a little special. We are playing a guitar pedal-themed game show that I put together, and Haley is going to be our official contestant. But if you guys want to play along yourselves at home, feel free to. I've set it up in a way that it should be pretty easy. You ready, Haley? Yes. Okay, so here's how it's going to work. There's going to be five rounds. Each round is going to start with some trivia questions about the specific effect type. It's got a few different sound demos of clones or different versions of the same circuit. And then depending on the round, we'll get to certain challenges that have different aspects to them, like arranging them by which one's the most expensive to the least expensive or picking the odd one out. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. How are you feeling? Nervous. I'm going into this blind. Yeah, you might be going into it blind, but I don't know. I mean, we've been married for what, four years as of last month, and I feel like with my obsession with guitar stuff, you probably know more than the average person would. I mean, don't you agree? I do. You you do talk about it a lot. Oh yeah, for reference, she gets super annoyed with me all the time for not shutting up about guitar stuff, but I feel like all of that has to sink in somehow. You're getting like a contact turbo nerd from being too close to me. <laughs> okay. So are you ready for our first round? Let's get it. Here we go. Round one, fight. All right, so this first round is on the Tube Screamer. Before we get started, what do you know about the Tube Screamer? It's green, you have more than one, and a lot of people like them. Okay, I mean, I feel like you're letting on more than you know, but we'll find out with these questions. So. Originally invented by engineer Susumu Tamura in the late 70s, which country did the Tube Screamer originate in? Japan. Yep. In 1979, the Tube Screamer first hit the market in Japan after its invention by Susumu Tamura, who, ironically enough, couldn't play the guitar himself, kind of like Leo Fender. Question number two. What brand was the Tube Screamer originally released under? Ooh, I feel like I remember you telling me this, but I don't remember. Oh, come on, don't say that, because then people are going to think that we're cheating and I told you beforehand. No, no, like, just talking about it in the past. Okay, you want to venture a guess? Uh, gosh, I honestly have no idea. <laughs> it's Maxon. So the actual manufacturer of the first Tube Screamer was a Japanese company named Nishin. They were responsible for building the pickups that were in some of Ibanez's guitars during the infamous lawsuit era. Nishin manufactures the Tube Screamer, along with a few other pedals, for Ibanez. In exchange, Ibanez tells Nishin that they can market the same effects in Japan under their own line, choosing the brand name Maxon for the Japanese release of these effects. I know why it's familiar. Why? when you went on a whole historical tirade of uh, tube screamers when we were looking for one at Naquan. Yep, that sounds like me. I'm probably shuttling you through Naquan, walking way too fast while giving you a whole history lesson without a chance to breathe. Yes, exactly. Yeah, see, I don't even remember that, but I'm glad that I know myself enough. <laughs> <laughs> 
using two diodes along with a JRC4558 op-amp to accomplish its signature effect, what type of effect is the Tube Screamer? Overdrive. Exactly right. The Tube Screamer was actually invented shortly after Japanese competitor Roland Corporation released the Boss OD-1 overdrive. Boss held the patent on asymmetrical clipping, leading Tamura to invent the Tube Screamer with a symmetrical clipping diode design. It's a much smoother overall sound than the Boss style circuit. Alright, question 4. Which Tube Screamer version was released first? The TS-5, TS-9, TS-7, or TS-808? I'm assuming they didn't release a numerical order. It's a safe assumption. Oh boy. Um, the TS7. No. Uh, the TS7 was released in like 1999. Oh. So the TS808 was the first version of the Tube Screamer. Oh. Came out in 1979. Three years later, we see the advent of the TS9, whose reign lasts until 1984. Then we get some interim versions, including the ST9 and the STL, before moving to the TS10, TS5, TS7, and then various reissues in the modern age. Alright, last trivia question. Where did the name of the Tube Screamer originate from? I feel like it's, it's something to do with Sam Ash. Nah, you know what? I'll give it to you. So the actual name Tube Screamer was a saying attributed to Sammy Ash, son of Jerry Ash, founder of the Sam Ash music store chain. It actually wasn't used to describe the pedal at all. Sammy Ash was testing a mini amp manufactured by Ibanez, and a fault in the circuit made the amp screech as soon as it was hooked up to the cabinet. Sammy Ash claimed that the sound he heard was that of a screaming tube amp, leading Tamura to eventually call his later creation the Tube Screamer. Alright, so... Here's our first audio challenge. There are five pedals here. Four of them are different versions or clones of the Tube Screamer. One of them is not a Tube Screamer at all, but another overdrive or distortion pedal entirely. We'll play all five sound demos. Try to guess which one is not a Tube Screamer. Remember that a Tube Screamer has like a characteristic boxy mid-range hump. All right, you ready? Can I hear an actual one first? Sure, yeah. Uh, you want TS-808, TS-9, TS-7? Which one? 808. 808. Good choice. Alright, there's your TS-808. You ready for the sound demos? I'm gonna try my best. All right, here's number one. And next is number two. Lastly, number five. All right, how you feeling? All I can think of is the Clone Wars, and I've never even seen it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they are clones of a circuit except for one of them one of them is not so which one do you think it is i don't want to get it wrong it's fine it's fine 
gonna say number three. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it was number three. Holy crap! Wow, you've raised the bar quite a bit. My expectations are a lot higher for you now. So you what? Have low expectations for me? What? No. <laughs> no. Otherwise, I wouldn't have asked you to do this. But now the game is on. You know more than you're letting on. So what led you to think that number three was not a tube screamer? Was different. Immediately, I noticed it was a lot more bright and sounded a little crispier to me, and it wasn't as muddy as the other uh, four. Yeah, so uh, number one was a TS7, number two is a TS9, number four was a Sparkbox OD808, and number five was a TS808. Number three was an Earthquaker Devices White Light. It's a clone of an MXR Distortion Plush and a DoD 250. The white light is an asymmetrical hard clipping distortion, while the tube screamers are all symmetrical. It's a lot smoother of a clipping style and a lot smoother of a distortion sound, but it does tend to get a little muddy, whereas the white light is a bit brighter, like you said, a bit more aggressive. When I think of a tube screamer, I think of more like Texas Blues, while a DoD 250 or a Distortion Plus makes me think of more like classic rock, if that makes sense. Yeah, I can hear that. But yeah, great job. You ready to move on to the next one? Yep. So next up is the Proco Rat, my favorite pedal of all time. And I swear, you better get these ones right. Even if you don't get anything else right, you better get these ones right. You know that episode of SpongeBob where uh, Squidward just removes his brain and puts it in the trash. Yeah. You've talked about rat pedals so much that that's where I'm at with it. <laughs> wow, that uh, only hurts my heart a little bit. It's okay, though. Here we go. Round two, fight. During what decade was the Proco rap released? Bonus points if you get the exact year. Feel like you are going to be severely disappointed. Oh boy. The 80s. Very, very close. 1979. Ooh. So while the rat actually hit the market in 1979, the earliest form of the Proco rat was likely developed in 1977, and the first physical form of the rat was produced in 1978 with the 12 different bud box units. It didn't become a permanent pit fixture of Proco's catalog until 1979, however. Question two, not counting releases specifically labeled reissue, how many versions of the Proco Rat are there? And I swear, you better not look at my shelf over there. I'm not looking, I'm not looking. Hold on, I'm counting on my fingers. Do you have enough fingers? Do I? Hmm. Nine. Nine. Nine and a half, really? Uh, you've got the original Proco Rat, which came with either a tone control or a filter control, and then the white face rat, which came in a smaller enclosure. So I'm really counting these as our one and a half versions. We sort of have an offshoot in 1979 with a bass-specific juggernaut. It was a rat with a blend control and a master volume. And the next big departure we see is the Turbo Rat in 1981, the Rat 2 in 1988, the Brat slash Roadkill in 1997, the Deuce Tone in 2002, the You Dirty Rat in 2004, the Solo in 2006, and the Fat Rat in 2014. Question three. How did the rat get its name? Knowing, knowing how the pedal sounds, I'm assuming someone was thinking of something gritty and a little grimy and dirty and i'm i'm assuming they thought of a rat and i apologize to all rat pet owners out there oof it was the rats in the basement actually the proco rat was developed by engineer scott burnham in proco's rat infested basement of their kalamazoo michigan factory there's also some rumors of a jerry-rigged security system that scott burnham had set up in the basement to keep the rat a secret but the basement constantly had rats in it hence the name proco rat I feel like I wasn't too off with that one. I feel like I was on the right track. Yeah. Give me like half a point for that one. <laughs> okay, I'll allow it. It's fine. This, 
you know, the points that don't matter at the end of the day, but sure, you get another half point. All right, question four, true or false, the rat and its variations are the only pedal produced by Proco Sound. I feel like this is going to be entirely wrong, but something inside me is telling me that it's their only pedal, but they do make other equipment. Yeah. Proco so, is actually right. main... Sorry, go ahead. That's right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Proco is mainly known for pro audio solutions. Everything from live sound to studios. They make all kinds of cables, snakes, Dante interfaces, all kinds of nonsense more marketed to the pro audio world. Variations of the Rat are the only actual guitar pedal that they produce. Kind of like a glitch in the Matrix, if you ask me. All right, question five. What microchip is considered to be the holy grail responsible for the sound of vintage rats? The electric kind. Oh, well, that's not wrong. All microchips are electric. Come on, I know I've talked to you about this before. I know you have too, and I told you to be prepared to be severely disappointed in me. Uh, is the electric kind your final answer? <laughs> yes. That hurts. It's the LM308. So while modern production rats have used the OP07DP in place of the LM308, many people attribute the tone of vintage rats to the LM308. When you look at a frequency response diagram, they are literally exactly the same, at least to an amount that you really would not be able to hear the difference. The only thing the LM308 purist camp has going for it is that the slew rate on the two ships is slightly different, basically meaning that the OP07DP is able to react to changes in volume quicker. If you place a capacitor in front of it, however, the slew rate changes and it gets into the same level of operation as an LM308, negating this effect. I'm sorry to disappoint but nine times out of ten, if you start spewing letters and numbers at me like that, I'm not going to remember them at all, and I'm going to zone out. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. All right. All right. So for this audio challenge, the rules are, here I've got four rats. Three of them have the OP07DP op amp. One of them has the LM308. I've reamped the exact same guitar signal, so the pedal gets the exact same input. I've also set each pedal to sound as similar as I possibly can. I even went so far as to open them up and measure the resistance on each pot in the settings that I've got them to account for component tolerances. So this is as controlled of an experiment as this can possibly get. I'm not expecting you to get this one right. Honestly, I don't know if anyone's going to get this one right, but this is trying to put that idea to rest that you've got one with an LM308 that sounds so much better than all these other rats with OP07DPs. We'll see. So one of the following four demos has an LM308, one of them does not. Or, sorry, three of them do not. You ready? I'll try my best. All right, let's start off with number one. Number three. but certainly not least, number four.
All right. So, which one has the LM-308? Number four. You sure? Yes. Ah. Could you tell a difference at all? Um... No. <laughs> okay, so it was just a guess. Yes, it was a guess, and... Yeah, I honestly, they all sounded exactly the same. And that's kind of the point. I mean, the op amps, there is no perceivable difference, but people really complain about it. All right, so number one had the LM-308. Oh. Two, three, and four all had OP-07DPs. Especially one, two, and three sounded exactly the same. Yeah, uh, so I actually didn't have enough rats to do this the right way. So number four was a brat. It was the budget version of the brat. The circuit is slightly different, which is probably why you heard more of a change. But yeah, the fat rat was the only one with an LM-308. I'm sure there's all these LM-308 purists slamming their head against the wall because they absolutely knew it immediately. Not a chance that they could get it wrong. No, not them. <sighs> all right. So let's step away from dirt pedals for a minute, and let's do something a bit easier. Analog versus digital delay. You ready for this? Yes. And what do you know about delay pedals? They sound cool. Oh, this one might be tough for you. It might not be that easy. All right, here we go. Round three, fight. So speaking of analog delay, what type of chip is used to create analog delay? The micro kind. Oh, let me think. Come on, I've told you this before. Delay. You know it. Shh, let me think, let me think. Buckets. <laughs> uh, the bucket brigade. Yeah, yeah, I'll give it to you. A bucket brigade device or a BBD. Chips like the coveted MN3005 and V3205 are responsible for the sounds of analog delay. They pass your signal from capacitor to capacitor to slow it down, sort of like how a chain of people would pass buckets of water from a lake to put out house fires, hence the name Bucket Brigade. Question two, which type of effect generally has longer delay times, analog or digital? Digital. All right, question three. Who created the first digital delay pedal? Boss, and that's not just because that's the only delay pedal I can think of right now. Oof, yeah, you got it right, but that hurt. Yeah, it was Boss. In 1983, Boss released the very first digital delay pedal with the DD2. It had an unprecedented maximum delay time of 800 milliseconds worth of crystal clean repeats indicative of digital delays. All right, question four. While analog and digital delay pedals are great, what was the first type of technology used to create a delay? Uh, tape delay. Yeah, I was even gonna give you like a word bank for that one. Yeah, it's tape delay. In 1951, guitar pioneers Les Paul and Mary Ford utilized a regular old tape recorder to create the first form of delay released on a commercial track. The time, however, was fixed, as the space between the recording and the playback heads on the tape machine were set. Eventually, Les Paul created even longer delay times by using two tape recorders together to double the distance between the tape heads before actual tape delay units with movable heads were invented to create customized delay times. Alright, last question. You ready? Yep. What is the best-selling delay pedal? Going back two questions to the only uh, pedal I think I can name right now, the Boss Digital Delay, is my guess. Oh, honey, there's like five, six, I don't, I don't even know. There's a lot of different versions of the Boss Digital the, Delay. You're going to have to pick one. The, I don't know what it's called, but it's the, I think it's it, it looks pretty. It's white with like the blue knobs on it, the light blue knobs. All of them look like that. Do they? Yes. I don't know. I don't know what they're called then. You know, I'm gonna kill it right here because either way it's wrong. Aww. The best-selling delay pedal is the MXR Carbon Copy. Oh man. According to Sweetwater, their best-selling delay pedal of all time is the Carbon Copy Analog Delay. It's a $149 delay unit using Bucket Brigade device chips. The design was spearheaded by George Trips, inventor of the Wayhuge line, and he was brought on by Dunlop to revive both Wayhuge and MXR. 
I'm sad. I was on a roll with that category. Yeah, you were doing pretty good. All right, here's our challenge. So we're gonna be looking at four different delay pedals here. A Boss DD3T, an Electroharmonics Memory Man with Hazurai, an MXR Carbon Copy, and a Walrus Audio ARP 87. Two of these are digital, two of them are analog. We'll play all the demos, and you'll have to guess after each one whether it's digital or an analog delay. Just keep in mind, digital delay is capable of longer, more cleaner repeats. It's an exact copy of the input signal, while analog delay is characteristically shorter delay times with a degrading repeat that loses a bit of high-end tone every time it repeats. You ready? Yep. All right, here's number one. Number three. Lastly, number four. Man, I don't know what was going on with those recordings. I know there's like a lot of noise and some weird clicks in them, so I'm sorry about that, but should still be enough to get the point. All right, so four demos, numbers one through four, which one were analog, which ones were digital? I feel like I'm going to get this massively wrong. It's okay. So, I wanna say three and four were analog and one and two were digital. Okay, I did not think of a stem for half right, so I'm going to play them both. <laughs> so, uh, number one was the carbon copy. It's an analog delay. Number two was the DD3T. It's a digital delay. Number three was the Memory Man, which was analog. And number four was the ARP87, which was digital. So what made you think specific ways on each one of those? The, um, kind of like the duration of it. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you can totally get short delay times with a digital delay. You can set it that way. But usually when you get a digital delay, you have the ability to set the delay times really long. I didn't do it too long on the two digital ones on here. For me, I don't know why. I thought you would get the carbon copy for sure just because in the very tail end, you can really hear the repeats degrading. Here, give me a second and I'll throw it back on. All right, so here's the ending of the carbon copy track again. And just listen closely to the repeats and how they sound different as they go through, just a little more barbly and messed up. Can you hear it a little better there when I point it out? Yeah, if you point it out, yeah. Okay, all right, on to the next one. So, two more rounds of our game show here. This next one is going to have to do with everybody's favorite, fuzz. Round four. Fight! Alright, question one. What was the first fuzz pedal ever created? The Fuzz Tone by Maestro. Yeah, exactly right. The Maestro FZ1 Fuzz Tone was invented by Glenn Snoddy and Revis Hobbs after hearing a busted mixing console channel record a baritone guitar on Grady Martin's Don't Worry in 1962. He brought the device to Gibson, who brought it to market, only for it to be a monumental failure and be out of production by 1964. In 1965, it was picked up by Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones, where he used it on the song Satisfaction, 
even though it was originally meant to be a placeholder for a horn track that was going to be recorded later. It stayed on the record, brought the fuzz tone back into popularity, and launched the commercial juggernaut that became fuzz pedals. Alright, question two. Which fuzz came first, the tone bender or the fuzz face? The fuzz face. No. Close, though. Uh, the tone bender was actually released in 1965, just shy of a year prior to the fuzz face's 1966 release date. The original fuzz face is actually eerily close to the design of the tone bender, although nearly every fuzz face sounded wildly different because Ivor Arbiter used some questionable parts in the manufacture of them. All right, question three, and you should get this one right. Which fuzz pedal was Jimi Hendrix most known for? The fuzz face. Although he used a multitude of different fuzz pedals, Jimi Hendrix was most known for using the fuzz face. Jimmy wasn't really tied to any piece of gear. He pretty much just used new things as they came out, constantly trying out different gear and technology in order to get the loudest, craziest, most unique tone that he could. There's even a rumor that just before he died, he began using Big Muffs, although the jury is still out on that in terms of its historical accuracy. Question number four. Which popular topology, meaning circuit style, of the fuzz pedal is the only one to use four transistors. Is four transistors a lot? Yes. Is it a big muff? Yeah! The big muff's unique design using four transistors actually gives it a very usable feature. Unlike other two or three transistor fuzzes that need to see the direct load of a guitar's pickups to work properly, the big muff is bleh. The big muff is much less impedance sensitive giving it the ability to be placed anywhere in the signal chain without running into impedance mismatch issues. Are Big Muffs, like the original Big Muff, as big as it is because it has four transistors? No, no. Transistors are maybe the size of your pinky fingernail. Oh, yeah. I, I got lucky with that answer then. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, you still got it right. It just, it, it doesn't need to be that big. Not by any means. All right, question five. While germanium is generally seen as the more desirable transistor material in fuzz pedals, what is the downfall of using them? Uh, heat? The temperature? Okay, I'll give it to you. Germanium's properties actually change as it heats up. Depending on the ambient temperature around a germanium transistor, the hotter it gets, the more spitty and gated germanium transistors tend to be. While silicon transistors don't have the same issue, Many people found a solution by throwing their germanium-equipped pedals in a freezer, or even putting a freezer-style ice pack over the top of the pedal when playing outdoor gigs in, gigs in the summer. God, I can't talk today. All right, here's our next audio challenge. Similar to before, we got five pedals. Four of them are different versions of the Electroharmonics Big Muff. One of them is a Fuzzbender clone. So I'll give you a hint here. We've got a regular NYC Big Muff, We've got a Russian muff, an op-amp muff, and a triangle muff, and then one pedal that is not a muff at all. We're going to play each one, and you'll try to distinguish which one is the odd one out. You ready? As ready as I'll ever be. All right. Here's number one. Number two. Number three. Number four. And 
And lastly, number five. Which one do you think is not the Big Muff? I'm going to go with number three. Ah. All right. Number one was an NYC Big Muff. Number two was a Russian Muff. Number three was an Op Amp Muff. And number four was a Triangle Muff, while number five was a Keeley Fuzzbender, clone of the Tone Bender. So what made you think that number three was different? Honestly, it sounded... The most different, but that makes sense with it being op-amp. Yeah, instead of transistors, it used op-amps. That definitely does make it sound a bit different, but, you know, I can't even fault you for that. When I designed this, I was like, oh, you know, tone better sounds totally different than a big muff, but yeah, you're honestly kind of right. I really don't want to, you know, ding you for getting that wrong. You already dinged it. You can't take back the ding. Yeah, I guess I can't take back the ding. That's right. I feel tricked. It's the rules of the game. You've been bamboozled. You've been bamboozled. All right. Last round, and of course we're going to be talking about a very divisive pedal, the Klon Centaur. Ooh. You ready? Yep. All right. Final round. Fight. Question one. Who was the inventor of the Klon Centaur? Mr. Finnegan. Yeah, Bill Finnegan. During the mid-90s, Bill Finnegan created the original Klon Centaur Professional Overdrive. He essentially designed it as a tube screamer for people who don't like tube screamers. It was actually kind of funny, because the only way you could get one when they came out was to get into contact with Finnegan himself. Before selling you one, he'd ask you about your rig and the kind of music you played, and he wouldn't even sell you one without making sure it would work for you first. Talk about customer service, I guess? I don't know. I feel like that's a weird business model. What do you think? That does sound pretty weird. Like, what if you were just denied? Why would you be denied? Denied buying a clone by some dude on the internet? It's especially before... weird because, like, you're paying for it. Yeah. I mean, I guess it limits the amount of people that are returning it, just saying, like, oh, I didn't bond with it, with him being, like, a small business and everything. You bond with your pedals? Yeah, you bond with your pedals. God, you're weirder than I thought. When you're not home, I sleep cuddling a rat. Uh-huh. Okay. You All bond right. with your pedals. Trust me. You guys understand. She doesn't get it. But no, you, I, you I and think, I, I think, we understand. It's I think okay. You're just weird. <laughs> All right. Question two. Name at least three famous users of the clon. John Mayer. That's one. John Mayer. Still one. John Mayer. <laughs> John Mayer, Josh Klinghoffer, Nels Klein, Joe Perry, Billy Gibbons, the late Jeff Beck, of all people. You have to rub it in, okay? I'm not rubbing it in. So many I people hear, have I'm used sorry. clones. I'm sorry. I'm the person. I hear Klon. I think of John Mayer, and that's about it. You know, you're not wrong, but there's more to the Klon than just, you know, the Continuum album. All right. Question three. What is considered the secret to the Klon's tone? Um... Definitely the uh, the centaur image. Like it really just emits a uh, uh, a statement that says this this is a this is a powerful tone. I hope you're not being serious. I could not give you a correct answer, anyways. Something to do with the inside. <laughs> <sighs> Something to do with the the circuitry of it. Yeah, it's. New old stock 1N34A germanium diodes. So it's kind of funny because the vast majority of people who use the Klon and claim magic about these diodes don't realize two things. First, 1N34A is a generic part name for germanium diodes. Like sure, Bill Finnegan claims that he had a specific batch of new old stock 1N34As, but just because a pedal has 1N34As listed in the schematic doesn't mean they're the same ones that he used at all. I could pull a germanium diode off the shelf right now, and it would be a 1N34A. Two, the diodes don't even engage until you push the gain knob up past 10 o'clock or so, 
meaning most of these people using a clan as a clean boost aren't even hearing the purported magic of these components. It's kind of annoying, but, you know, I digress. Question four, what was Bill Finnegan's self-produced reissue of the clan called? The... The KTR. Yeah, that's right. Around 2014, Bill started releasing a red enclosure pedal with white pointer knobs, featuring the phrase, kindly remember, the ridiculous hype that offends so many is not of my making, in reference to the outrage of how much original clones were going for in the used market. The KTR was reported to use the exact same parts as the original clone, but as of 2021, Bill ran out of his stash of parts and the KTRs now use different batches. Some people say the KTR stands for Klon the Reissue, others say it's a nod to the original spelling of Centaur, which was spelled with a K, but Bill has never confirmed, and the world may never know. Alright, question 5. How much did the Klon sell for when it was released? Can I ask two questions? What? Can I ask two questions? Sure, shoot. When was it released? Uh, 1994? Yeah, 94. And uh, does it have to be a solid number? It can't be like a range? If you want to give a range, I'll give you credit. That's fine. Would you prefer a solid number? I would prefer a solid number, but if you give me a range like between a dollar and a million dollars, it's wrong. <laughs> I was going to say between 100 and 150, but if you wanted a solid number, I was going to say 100. Because it seems like it might have been expensive. No, you're pretty far off far off yeah. what was it like a thousand two hundred and twenty five dollars in 1994 so it's about 461 bucks adjusted for 2023 inflation the clan was one of the most expensive msrp pedals when it was released it was really was an insane amount of money for just a guitar pedal some even believe it was responsible for the rise of boutique pedals now they're typically selling for about four thousand to six thousand dollars on the used market depending on the enclosure and the graphics version the KTR sold for $269 when it was released, and conversely, it now sells for about $600 to $700. Bucks. All right, so for our audio challenge, in the spirit of the insane prices of clones, this is going to be a sort of prices Right style deal. Here, I've got three Klon clones, an Electroharmonic Soul Food, a Wampler Tumnus Deluxe, and a Warm Audio Centavo. I'm going to play each one without telling you which is which, and you need to put them in order from what you think is most expensive to what you think is least expensive. You ready? Yep. All right, here's number one. Number two. And finally, number three. So, before we go into, by sound, which one's most expensive, which one's least expensive, do you want to guess by, like, brand and model? Put them in highest to lowest? Uh, I can try. Okay, so your options are a Warm Audio Centavo, an Electroharmonic Soul Food, and a Wampler Tumnus Deluxe. Okay. Um, I think number one was the tumness number two was the soul food and number three was the centavo okay and which one do you think is most expensive to least expensive i 
think three was the most expensive. So order three, three, one, two is what I think. Ooh, I didn't think I was going to get that. So surprisingly, uh, first off, here's the prices. The Tumnus Deluxe is 199 bucks. The Warm Audio Centavo is 179 bucks, oh, And the man. Soul Food is 101 And in order, they were Tumnus Deluxe, Warm Audio Centavo, and Soul Food. Wow. Yeah, you, the least expensive one you put as the most expensive and the yeah. best sounding. See, so what I, made you... I knew the Soul Food was going to be the least expensive of those three. So what made you pick those? Like, what, what did you like about the Soul Food more than the other ones? Um, I don't know how to, I don't know how to describe this in like a technical way. That's okay. Describe it, it however you can. It just sounded a little more magical. Those diodes? <laughs> Those diodes doing it for you? Yeah. I, yeah. I had it to where, so for reference on this, I used, uh, a while ago there was a whole article posted about John Mayer signing a fan's clon at a concert and marking his settings on there. So I used the John Mayer settings for the clon. It was uh, 11 o'clock on the output and the gain and 1 o'clock on the treble. So those diodes, those magic diodes, were barely engaged. But uh, I, I told you I couldn't think of a, a good way to describe it. It just sounded a little more, you know, ethereal and, and, and full and pretty. <laughs> okay. I mean, all right. You know, I'll just take that as a compliment to my playing. How about that? I would like to rescind my comments then. <laughs> all right. So uh, when it comes to claw clones, I mean, for me, they really all do sound so similar. I think the way that I can tell, at least when I listen to those back, other than knowing myself because I recorded them. So obviously I might have some sort of like implicit bias. Uh, the soul food, the noise floor seems to be higher. Like I can hear the background noise just a bit more in the soul food than I can in the Tumnus Deluxe and the Centavo. Conversely, the Tumnus is like dead quiet in between playing notes. And I think that's a big difference between the two. Uh, for reference, here's a short clip of the soul food again. And here's the same clip, but with the Tumnus instead. I just hear a little bit of a difference in the noise floor. What about you? I agree. Okay. Uh, for me, honestly, my favorite is the Warm Audio Centavo. Uh, everything I see online about online opinions and stuff, you know, everybody's raving over the Wampler Tumnus. And I think it's a great clone clone. But for me, I really think the Centavo takes the cake. I mean, it's like 20 bucks cheaper, and to me it sounds just a bit better. I don't think it's achieved like the cult classic status that the Tumnus has yet, because it just hasn't been on the market as long. I guess but... I'm the odd man out with this one. Say again? I guess I'm the odd man out with this one. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> uh, definitely that. preferring the soul food is a little bit different. All right. So, how did you like our game today? How did you like being the first contestant of the first Pedals and Pickups podcast game show? It was pretty fun. I, uh... Some things I did better than I expected. Some things I did worse, and I feel like I've embarrassed myself and you're going to scold me for my answers, but... It was I fun. I enjoyed it. I think the was scolding enough, don't you? Uh, yeah. I mean, what are the mental implications of thinking that you're right saying something and then hearing that little okay you don't off. have to play it again i heard it enough today did you yes it stopped are you sure yes i'm sure one more time <sighs> just had to get the use out of it thank you for that it's all right well i'm glad that you came on and did it i mean this was honestly pretty fun for me to make it was pretty labor intensive but it was pretty fun um i hope you guys at home all enjoyed it if you did play along let me know in the comments how you guys did um you know Haley, oh, I was going to say you could win something, but you already have a t-shirt, don't you? I do. But you know what? You guys could win. See, if you send me an email or a direct message on any one of my socials and you tell me your best corny dad joke, you'll be entered to win a free Pedals and Pickups podcast t-shirt. Haley already won one just by dealing with me for four years. I, I mean, stole yours as well. So. Say again? I stole yours as well, so I really have two. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I guess she won two. 
I mean, imagine four years of dealing with me and all you get is a lousy t-shirt. Tell me about it. But you guys send me an email, you send me a DM on any one of my socials, and you'll be entered to win a Pedals and Pickups podcast t-shirt of your own. I'll pick a winner at the end of this month. So the end of July, we'll get our next one. We've picked a winner every month so far. It's been great. I love giving away these shirts. So uh, recently, I did my first little foray into WordPress and made a website for the podcast. Haley has been my uh, big use tester. What do you think of it? Pretty impressed by it. I think it looks really good. I appreciate that. I mean, that was pretty difficult. WordPress was not easy to figure out. You know, somebody's probably listening to this and they're a WordPress expert and they're like, wow, this guy's an idiot. WordPress is super user-friendly. To me, it wasn't. I'm not that smart. Either way, if you want to check it out, you can go to pedalsandpickups.com. You can find a whole index of all of our episodes with write-ups on each one, all the photos that Haley takes as our resident photographer. They all turn out super awesome. Uh, you can Eventually, you'll find downloads like impulse responses and templates to help your workflow, but I haven't gotten those up yet. And then you can find links to my Patreon if you want to support the show, to my Teespring merch store if you don't want to risk it with sending me an email or a DM. You just want to buy one outright. That's fine. And you'll also find a way to contact me if you want to sponsor the show. If you're a small business that makes your own pedals, makes your own audio equipment, I want to feature you. Hit me up on the contact form and I'll be in touch. It's a great way to get your name out there and support the show. You can reach out over Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, or email me at pedalsandpickups at gmail.com if you want to suggest topics or just chat about gear. I'm here for you guys. I love talking to you. It makes my day every time I get to. Honestly, I don't get to nerd out enough. Plus, it's nice talking to somebody who understands that the soul food is the not-so-great clone clone. I'm allowed to have a preference, okay? You can have a preference, but that's like preferring barbecue sauce on pizza. I mean, come on. You're the one that likes that. I do not oh, like wait, that. No, what are you on? <laughs> barbecue sauce on pizza? What? Since when? She's out here accusing me. <laughs> if you like the show and you want to see it continue, consider supporting the show on Patreon. Every dollar goes right back into the podcast for hosting fees, gear, and equipment to make the show. It's been an awesome week. My mouth is still healing from surgery, so it's been uh, quite difficult to get through this episode but i appreciate you guys sticking out with me as always Haley. i appreciate everything you do on the back end and being my guinea pig slash crash dummy slash victim for this episode wouldn't have it any other way all right i'll see you guys next week till then take care <laughs>